Let's pray. Dear Father, we give praise to you that you are so faithful to us. You have met with us each week as we've gathered over many years together. And we thank you, dear Lord, for this morning that it is unique. And uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to sit before you, even though you are invisible to us, and to pay attention to what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, this is a series on lessons that I've learned and uh, as in ministry. And this particular lesson that we're talking about is a um, lesson about Protestantism and and the uh, three branches of the Christian church, the uh, Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox, or the Orthodox and the uh, Protestant, and um, there are others, other branches as well, but they're so much smaller that they don't get much recognition. But the fact is that um, these three branches really don't know what to do with each other. They all believe in the Catholicity of the Church, that is, that the Church is universal. And implied in that is that it should be one, should be all unified, but there isn't unity. Each one sort of acts like they're the only one, and the true one, each one has built its theology around that idea that they're the true church, but the fact is, there's so much that the three have in common. It's so much of, of Christian doctrine that we hold in agreement with one another that um, nobody, none of the three branches want to treat the other two branches just as like cults that are um, so heretical that they're not even you know, worthy of being considered a church like um, the Mormons or someone like that. They all honor each other's baptisms as valid baptisms. And that's a sign of the fact that they're not really ready to just completely discount the other as a, in terms of being a church in some fashion. But uh, they really don't know how to explain or um, treat each other. They are not, the fact is, they are not in communion with each other. And that, that just means that they don't, uh, they don't, you know, they're not united to the point where they will sit at the table of the Lord and partake together of communion. Um, although they generally, all of them, honor each other's baptisms. Um, so, I said last week that I, uh, you know, that this is not something I knew a lot about from my seminary training, and um, but I've had to learn it from the experiences that I've had as a pastor, which wasn't what I wanted to learn about, but it's what I had to learn about, and uh, and I've also realized as I'm going through this series that. 
there's a deeper motivation I have for going through this series. This isn't just me sharing lessons that I've learned. This is um, an effort to vaccinate the congregation as we go forward into the future against certain things that um, I really would not want the church to you know, diseases that I don't want the church to catch going into the future. And so this is, uh, that's a lot of my motivation for going through this. Um, and this is certainly one of those. Now, so as we approach this question of, you know, relating why are we Protestant and how do we view Catholic and Orthodox, um, although I, you know, I'm more convinced than ever of the truth and validity of the Protestant theology, I also um, think it's really important that we are, that we all approach this with a very humble attitude and uh, that we are not thinking that, um, you know, that just because you're not like us, that that means that you are not a true believer and that, uh, you know, heaven is going to be um, habitated only by Protestant Christians. Um, there are certainly, uh, and, and, you know, even apart from the theology of the three and the disagreements of the three, the fact is the vast majority of Christians just grow up in the context of one or the other and they just go along with what they've been taught about Christ. And, and uh, so it's, it's not, you know, they're not rebelling against anything. They're just accepting. And there's nothing wrong with accepting, obviously. Uh, there's, you know, we all accept things and we all are guilty of accepting errors just because we don't recognize them as errors. Either, you know, in our culture and in our, even in our churches. As R.C. Sproul said, you know, I know that when I get to heaven, I'm going to find out that certain things I taught were wrong. I just don't know what those things are, and so I can't stop teaching them now. But that's the way it will be, and we'll all be like that. So, anyway, all of this in the context of that humility that I think we ought to have. And, but I'm just trying to explain why I think that the claims of these two branches of the church are, um, are problematic and why Protestants should not feel like we need to um, move in the direction of Catholicism or Orthodoxy. Now today is mainly about Catholicism because the uh, the passage that we're going to be talking about today is where Jesus in Matthew 16 says, uh, "You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church." Matthew 16:18, um, and of course that's the verse that uh, is the most common verse for Catholics to point to, sort of defending the idea of the Pope and that that uh, God instituted an office in the church by this statement that was perpetual, not just 
for the lifetime of Peter, but Peter and all of his successors, where where um, they were given the infallible protection and ability to speak for Christ down through history and be his vicar, each of them being his vicars down through the process of history. Uh, that vicar means uh, substitute in place of him. That is, you know, they're standing in his place. So, let's look at this passage a little bit. Um, and, you know, he says, uh, this is right after Peter's confession, where he's, you know, he says, what do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, uh, and then Jesus responds in verse 17 of Matthew 16, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there are different views of what Jesus is talking about here when he says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now you've heard that this is the moment where Jesus renames Peter. He has been called Simon up to this point. And he says, Simon, you are Peter. And Peter, of course, is from the word rock. And, um, and then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. So there have been different views. Some people say that the rock is Christ himself. You know, that we, we don't have the video, but if the, we had the video, we'd see Jesus pointing to Peter when he said, you are Peter, and pointing to himself when he said, upon this rock. I will build my church. Um, the second theory is that the rock is Peter's testimony. You know, you have just proclaimed me as the Christ and upon the rock of this testimony, I will build my church. The third alternative or third interpretation is that every Christian who by revelation of the Holy Spirit comes to the realization that Jesus is the Christ, he becomes a rock upon which the church is built. The fourth interpretation is the Catholic one, that uh, Peter is the first pope. And this is the uh, the institution of the office of Pope in the words of Jesus. And the fourth is that the rock was Peter as the first apostle laid in the foundation. So whenever you um, lay, built a building of stone in those days, you'd start out with a cornerstone, you'd find a you'd try to make it perfectly uh, straight on all sides and square and you'd try to lay it in a way that was perfectly straight and exactly the way that you wanted and then all the others were built on that, upon that but the 
The fact is that the next step after laying the cornerstone was to lay the foundation. And all the foundation stones were guided by that first one. He got that one right, and then all the others were set according to that one. Well, when you lay a foundation, you put the cornerstone down, and you have to lay another stone first. Obviously, you don't lay them all at the same time. And that Peter was the next stone laid. So let's dig into this a little bit more about, in terms, see what we can find from the passage. First of all, um, the word for rock in Greek is Petra. And even though you don't usually think of a rock as being feminine, Petra is a feminine word. And you know that there, in many languages, that, you know, words are either feminine or masculine or neuter. And uh, not in English, so this is a little bit foreign to us, but, um, but in Greek, that's the way it is. And Petra is a feminine term. And, you know, you have other terms like, you know, war and things like that that often are, are feminine. So it's not like um, they all line up to what you would guess it would be masculine or feminine, the word. So, rock is feminine, Petra. And, uh, and so, if Jesus wants to name Peter a rock, he can't really use the word Petra because it's a feminine word and that would be, mean a feminine name. You know, you didn't have men with feminine names. Um, and I guess a good illustration of that, this would be, um, you know, when we have a name that ends with E-T-T-E. It's probably not a man's name. You know? Um, although, Kathleen just thought of one. Did you? <laughs> what? No, I just thought of Anyway, oh, Shanette, that's right. It was a, your last name. Okay, so, so um, you know, so what Jesus does is he says, you are Petros, instead of saying Petra. Now, Petros was not a word used in, in that language at that time. It, he basically made it up. And he got it from Petra. It would be similar to, you know, having a baby that uh, had a very noticeable head of brown hair, and you wanted to, you thought, wow, we should name him based on his distinctive head of brown hair, but we don't want to call him brunette, we'll call him Bruno. So you adapt the name a little bit to turn it into a masculine name. And that's sort of what Jesus did with Peter. Um, and so the connection between you are, you know, I call you Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church, is unmistakable. It's really, and the only reason anybody would argue against it is because they're trying desperately to not be drift in the Catholic direction. Um, but, but uh, of course, that's not a good reason to, uh, to twist the interpretation of the Bible. Um, so anyway, because of that connection, I think it's, we need to eliminate 
the idea that the rock is Christ himself and the rock is Peter's testimony. It's clearly a connection between Peter and the rock. Um, Now, if you ask a Roman Catholic what is the biblical evidence that there is an infallible church and uh, you know they don't think it's infallible in, in any way except that the church when it makes its official proclamations of what is the truth is infallible and, and, uh, and the Pope in that very limited sense himself far from f- infallible morally or anything like that just in the official the pronouncing official doctrine of the church is infallible um, and if you ask them wh- you know what's the evidence by and large this is the primary passage that they're going to point to they believe that Peter was the first pope and that Jesus established him as such and that this was a perpetual office um, well the fact is that the modern Roman Catholic view of this is actually a late interpretation of the passage. Here's what happened historically. In the early church, it was very gradual. The idea that the Roman church had some kind of preeminence over the other churches. And that didn't come by the interpretation of this passage or any other passage. That grew in the church because Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. And they believed that God had made it so. They were real big on this notion that, you know, things that happened showed something. And if God elevates Rome, it's because God wanted to elevate Rome. And therefore, if Rome is the big cheese, the, the big apple, you know, the big whatever, then that means that God wants it to be more important. And that means that the church in Rome ought to be the head of all the others. And there were arguments in the early church about this. Because Rome, of course, wanted to assert its authority and wanted to say, we're, be- we're above all the others. And all the other churches said, nah, nah that's not right. You know, we're all, we're all equals. And some of them did acknowledge that, that uh, you know, there's a certain firstness that God intended to give Rome. Not preeminence, but firstness in the sense of you know, because you're the capital, then then you can call councils, you know, the first among equals concept. But of course, the those who were of Rome wanted more than that. They wanted the final say. They wanted to be not only in charge, but they wanted basically to be the ones who told everyone else what to do and what to believe. Okay, um, in fact, there was a time when the Roman Empire had two capitals, Rome and Constantinople. And during this period, the Bishop of Constantinople shared preeminence with the Bishop of Rome. 
So this was not some kind of a thing that, that right from the get-go, the early church fathers saw that what Jesus was doing in Matthew 16 was giving some kind of preeminence to Rome, or, you know, Peter became the bishop of Rome. We do know that. Or, yeah. But, um, but that, that uh, th- there was no sense that this was passage was setting up something that we're supposed to move on into the future. Um, but, you know, there's, and so now when later this interpretation came to be used for that, conveniently, but, but um, there's problems with that. First of all, there's no institution like this in the Old Testament. There's no pattern in the scriptures that there's some body, some group, some city that has this kind of authority over the rest of God's people. Um, that, uh, you know, what they say determines the truth. Um, and they have been given some kind of uh, authority or um, infallibility. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean it's not true just because it's not in the Old Testament. But if something like this is going to be introduced, you know, then you would expect there to be some significant attention given to this in the New Testament. Just as, you know, there are many things that continue down from the Old Testament um, into the New um, but there were some things that changed, and those things that were changed were really given a lot of attention. You know, for, for instance, the fact that the Gentiles were now going to be included in the church, that was a radical idea. And the New Testament is chock full of struggles and teachings to make that issue clear, that this is the new way. And the same thing about the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was was, you know, not to be practiced in the same way that it had been before. And that is given very clear and very uh, repeated attention in the New Testament. So if there was something like this that was going to be instituted, you would expect that there to be substantial New Testament warrant. But there isn't. Um, Second of all, this passage says nothing about any successor to Peter. It just says Peter. So whatever you think, there's no basis here to say that this, whatever was happening, whatever was being given to Peter, that this was, there's no reason to think that this continues on to the next Peter who who took his place when he died. Um... Now, obviously, the apostles were given a certain authority to speak for Christ, but um, there's nothing here that says that that uh, Peter has any special authority or special infallibility, much less any of Peter's successors. successors. Um, and through the book of Acts, through the book of the rest of the New Testament, Peter does have a certain firstness 
among the apostles. Um, you know, he's the one who stands up and speaks at Pentecost. He's the first one here to stand up and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Every single list of the apostles in the New Testament has Peter as the first name. Um, when it comes time to replacing Judas, it's Peter that initiates the process and says we need to do this in Acts 1. Um, when it's time to for this enormous revelation that the Gentiles are supposed to be included in the church, it's to Peter first that the revelation comes in the dream that he has. Um, and there, there are many other examples of the fact that Peter has a certain special place as first among the apostles. Um, but in, through the book of Acts, he doesn't act like a dictator or like a person who's suddenly, you know, the one who puts all the others in the sh his shadow. Um, he's, when he goes, for instance, to Samaria, he goes because the apostles send him. He's not going in his own initiative. In uh, Acts 11, he's held accountable for his actions. He has this dream and he goes to Cornelius' house and the church feels like they have, the other apostles, they feel like they have the authority to call him in and, and put him on the stand and say, why did you do this? Now it just so happens that they're convinced by his testimony that he did the right thing and they, they verify what he's done. But the point is they, they're not just like, well, whatever he did has to be true. They want to, they want to uh, you know, see the evidence themselves. Um, he's actually rebuked by Peter. We read about this in Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14, when they are at Antioch and Peter actually uh, makes the mistake of going to sit with the uh, Jews and separating from the Gentiles. And, uh, and, and Paul, in public, in front of everyone, rebukes him for acting in a way contrary to the gospel. Um, and so, uh, that's the way things are in, for Peter. In, in a positive sense and in a negative sense, in terms of his role and his place. He was the first among equals. Um, but, you know, there's, um, if we're, to understand this particular passage in Matthew 16, especially verse 18, um, there's another passage that's, or there's several other passages that are really helpful. Um, scripture has a lot to say about the themes that Jesus uses here in this passage. Um, for instance, in, in other passages, Christ is spoken of as the rock. Like when uh, in Daniel's vision of the statue and the little rock that's not carved with human hands comes out and hits the feet of the statue and it all falls down and that little rock grows into a great mountain that becomes you know, the kingdom of, of God that lasts forever. And uh, that rock, so he is the rock but he's also the foundation. In uh, 1 Corinthians 3.11, 
No man can lay a foundation other than that which, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation, as well as being the rock. And then uh, several places, he is the stone which the builders rejected, which becomes the very cornerstone of the building. So he is the rock, he is the foundation, he is the cornerstone. And uh, so this is like uh, the same kind of language. And now he's saying, Peter is the foundation. Upon this rock I will build my church. But if Christ is the cornerstone of the church, which is said often, then what's the rest of the foundation? That implies that there's a foundation that's not part of the cornerstone. And of course, that foundation, by and large, is the apostles. We read this in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, and especially verse 20, which says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So there is definitely a church being built, a building being built. It's built on the cornerstone of Christ but the foundation is the apostles and prophets. This is carried over also in the book of Revelation, as we saw last uh, November in Revelation 21.14, where John has the vision of the city descending out of heaven. It says the city had 12 foundation stones. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the apostles form the foundation stones. There's Jesus, the cornerstone, and the apostles, the foundation stones. Of course, the building is the church, and individual believers are the stones in the church, being built by Christ, on Christ. As it says in 1 Peter 2, coming to him as to a living stone which was rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ but there's one more passage that's important uh, that points us to the notion that in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus is referring to Peter as the first stone laid among other stones in the foundation. Right after, if you look back at Matthew 16, right after saying, you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church, which is verse 18, he goes on to elaborate in verse 19 as to what this means. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom 
And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, if, you know, in, unfortunately in English, our you that's singular is the same as you plural, so we can't tell in the translation whether this is singular or plural. But in the Greek, it is singular. So he says, you are Peter. I will build upon, uh, upon this rock, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind shall have been bound, so, and so forth. But, two chapters later, Jesus says the exact same thing to all 12 disciples together, using the plural in 1817. Truly I say to you, whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So part of being the rock upon which the church was built was receiving the authority to bind and loose, whatever that means. We'll talk about that another occasion. First is given to Peter, but then very soon after it's given to all twelve. So, in my opinion, it's, uh, it seems that the evidence points clearly in the direction of Peter as a representative of the apostle, the first apostle among the others, as you, if you will, um, and, um, and therefore I think that, the, uh, that this doesn't prove what the Catholics would like it to prove. So, let me stop there and open it up. And uh, next week we'll talk about tradition, but um, which is another issue, and passages which talk about tradition. But but this is uh, all we're going to cover today. What else? What uh, what do people like to ask or say? Or Jason. So, with regard to this passage, I think. The concepts of exegesis and eisegesis are very important here. Exegesis being, you know, coming to the text and just letting the text speak for itself, taking all the context and what does the text say versus eisegesis where you're kind of coming in with a already formed conclusion and looking looking for evidence of it. Of it. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that if you are just looking at Matthew 16, you're just reading, you're reading, you're reading the whole Gospels, you're reading all the New Testament, but you're, you're, you're taking all that context into account, and you come to Matthew 16, you're not going to come to the conclusion that Jesus is saying that there is going to be a successor, like you said, there's no sign that there's going to be a successor to Peter, there's no sign that... Um, this successor will have authority over the entire church. Um, there's just no, you're just reading the New Testament, just reading the text. There is no reason to come to that conclusion. Right. The only reason, really, that Catholic, if, if you're coming from, trying to come from the Catholic perspective, the only reason to believe that Jesus is saying this is if you've already accepted the authority of the church right. to tell you what the verse means. Yep. The church is telling you that Jesus is saying this about establishing a 
the successor computer and everything, you need to already have accepted the authority of the church. So if you take that step back, you, you, you hear the, the, the debate over authority, like we were talking about like Sol Scriptura and everything last week, that kind of precedes this. If you're, if you're already, um, if, you, if you don't accept that the church has the authority to speak for God, interpret the Bible like that, then you're, you don't have that a reason to accept the conclusion that's being marked. Yep, right. And that's why I started with that. And, um, but it's important, I think, to also face the fact that, that uh, there's Protestant eisegesis as well. And, uh, um, and this is a passage where there's been a lot of Protestant eisegesis who, you know, where uh, they're desperately, some have desperately searched for a way to make this contrary to, so contrary to what the Catholics wanted to say that it's, you know, a completely different meaning. But, um, but I think it's also wrong. That is, you know, that, that it means Christ or that it means the testimony. Sit through 
need to to come to a conclusion. Yep. So that was where my thoughts. That's right. We we need to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not just all the other things. It's Okay, others. David. If this TV is too far from what we're talking about, that's okay. Talk about but as far as what authority the Catholic Church today claims to have, I'm familiar relatively when I'm speaking ex cathedra. Um, is there another kind of authority that they claim beyond that? Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is what is this? Well, I mean, it's not just um, that they have authority, that but they also had have have had authority down through the ages, and therefore all the things that have been said, they believe are infallible. Yes, yes. So. You know, for instance, the, um, the, the all the previous official statements, ex cathedra statements or, or creeds or whatever, the council decisions that have been made, um, those, you know, their official doctrine is that those are infallible. But the fact is, in practice, they don't really act like that. And they have to say that because that's they've been saying that for hundreds of years and, to, and it would all come unraveled if they said, oh, we were wrong here. And so you, we look at it and say, my goodness, they, they, uh, they were obviously wrong and it's almost like they think they were, they realize that they're wrong, but they can't admit it. I think I told you about a story about going to my uncle's funeral and uh, which was Catholic and but the guy gave a, the priest gave a wonderful gospel message about you know believe in Jesus and when you die you go to heaven and I went up to him afterwards and I said I really appreciate your your uh, your message there but you know how does that square with the idea of purgatory and he said I've never really felt comfortable with the idea of purgatory <laughs> and and so the fact is that's a lot of the way the church actually is. It's not, they don't act like the things that they believe, they actually believe. So we have to be careful. I mean, we're critiquing the official doctrine of the church here, and we can't forget that this doesn't mean that this is what Catholics all believe. Um, and even leaders in the church often don't. And another illustration of that is that, um, you know, Protestants tend to focus on the statements in the Council of Trent that basically uh, said that anybody who believes like a Protestant is going to hell. Let him be anathema. It says that over and over again about a number of different doctrines. And, um, but, you know, it's, you'd be hard-pressed to find any present-day Catholics, not that you could find some, I'm sure, but, uh, you know, they're not, they're few and far between who actually believe that today. And, uh, you know, they, in the, in the uh, Second Vatican Council, 
it didn't say that was wrong, but it said it referred to separated brethren. Other, you know, Protestants and Orthodox Christians being separated brethren, which is a far cry from, you know, let them be anathema. And uh, so they sort of ignore some things in the past and move on, and they evolve, but they claim they're not evolving. I mean, they're they they don't claim they're not evolving. They they claim that they're not contradicting anything that they said earlier. They agree that they're evolving, but they aren't undoing anything in the past. So, you know, it's it's not fair for us to just. Um, you know, it's fair to talk about the Roman Catholic Church and its official position as long as we make that clear. But, but uh, we can't just think that that means that the same thing as um, that. That's this is what every, all the Catholics believe. Rebecca. So there's, you know, let's divide the early church time. I mean, certainly during the apostolic age when there are apostles around, what you say is, is true. And then you have a period where there were people that knew the apostles and interacted with the apostles, but no apostles were still around. But right? more than that, right? Because they were disciples of the apostles. Well, that's why I said they knew them and they interacted with them. That's what. Yeah, well, there are various, obviously, the various levels of which contact and, and knowledge they had. Um, and so you, um, and th- this is the murkiest period of church history. It's really the second century. Um, and uh, so, you know, some of the early church fathers write. And, and they say things like, um, 
you know, I knew, you know, that, that this person learned from the Apostle Paul or Peter or whatever and, and uh, certain things. Nothing that I know of, at least, that, that uh, we would... Um, nothing is said with that kind of claim that we would have a lot of problems with, I don't think. But, um, but the fact is, when, when the period of time passes and all the, the uh, um, dust settles, we do have the teachings of Christ, the life of Christ, and the apostolic commentary on all those things in the New Testament. All that God ordained for to continue. And all the rest, in a sense, is hearsay. Um, and it's, you know, you, I have, I have a, a three-volume work which is um, arguing, it's three volumes this thick, and it's arguing for the, uh, basically the reformed view of Sola Scriptura from the early church fathers. So, and, and there's other treatments where people are arguing against Sola Scriptura from the early church fathers. So, is that our job to, to, you know, study all the church fathers and all the arguments for or against whether they were arguing this way or that way? Um, you know, that obviously the Protestant thinks, no, that's not our job. Although that's helpful to have scholars that do that, and there are Reformed scholars and Protestant scholars that do that, but um, that that just like the Old Testament, this is the same thing in the Old Testament. When the oh, we're really late. When the prophets spoke, you know, and then died, what did they mean by this? What did they mean by that? Well, they had disciples. They had people that were there who listened. People that knew them. And, but those things never were, were given any kind of special place that, oh, we know what Ezekiel was talking about because this guy over here knew Ezekiel and he told us this, that in the end, oral tradition doesn't, can't be dependent on the nature of it. You're playing telephone. You go around a circle of 20 people and the message at the end isn't the same as the message at the beginning. It's just not a reliable way of passing along information. That's why it got inscripturated and that's why that is our chief source of understanding. Anyway, sorry, we're going really late. I've just got lost track of time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Please prepare us now for uh, the privilege of coming into your presence with us. worship and singing and, and attentive ears. We pray that you be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.